And a pleasant good evening, Mets fans, and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. My name is Sam Lebowitz, joined as always by my lovely co-host Jack Hendon. And the Mets, folks, the Mets have won five in a row. They've won seven of their last nine. There's positives to take away from this stretch. There are negatives to talk about from this stretch. Things we're scared about, things we're happy about. We're going to jump right in, Jack. First of all, happy Mother's Day. How are you? Happy Mother's Day. I'm great. I miss my mom. Um, me too. I'm in, I'm in college. No, nothing's happened to my mom. I just, me, me too. just want to go home and see her. But, I, yeah. I will before we get started. I'm going to give a quick shout out to not just my mother, by the way, but to my father, because today, May 9th, is his birthday. So happy birthday to Nate. Uh, I know he's been listening to the last few episodes, and I hope I hope he gets this little shout out of the birthday. So uh, let's get into it, though. So today, the Mets won by a score of four to two. They swept a series from the Diamondbacks, although honestly, watching the games, it didn't really feel like they dominated the series all that much, but they won all three games. So that's good. Five and two week overall, seven of their last nine, five in a row. That's the good. The bad, Jacob deGrom is hurt. He was scratched earlier this week in St. Louis, didn't pitch because he had a lat issue. Uh, but they were telling us it's not all that serious. There's nothing going on uh, in terms of, uh, you know, all that you don't have to worry about. He's going to make his next, you know, we're going to, we're going to talk about him and figure out when his next start is that turned out to be today. And he looked pretty good through the first three or four innings. He was a 12 up 12 down. And then he kind of broke down in the fifth, had to work out of a bases loaded jam and was taken out after throwing a couple warm-up pitches before the start of the sixth inning. So he'll undergo an MRI. Uh, they're saying it's precautionary, but Jack, I, I believe you can echo this. Can't really help but be scared. Yeah. Yeah, because usually it's just a blister or something that, that gets him taken out. When he's having games like he did today where he's dealing and, you know, he sort of loses his grip, what it's always been has been like, you know, something's wrong with a fingernail or he's pitching with a blister on his thumb. And that's why, like, he hangs the sliders and misses with the fastball. But, yeah, today was a little bit – I mean, you could see in between pitches – uh, a couple times in the first like three or four innings, he was like feeling at his uh, feeling at his waist a little bit, feel like like sort of trying to like manipulate his body to uh, get over whatever discomfort he was dealing with. And he, you know, essentially couldn't take it anymore while he was warming up in the sixth inning. And uh, it was a lot, I think, better the way that he went out of the game than you might expect when you hear that like he's pitching that well and then he just gets taken out out of the blue like it's not like he ripped something and keeled over on the mound um it's not like he's going to be going on the injured list yet but i mean it sucks because he looked great as usual um despite that you know he's he's a way of like battling the elements battling things that are not necessarily in his control uh and he looked really good and he got taken out and I think the other frustrating thing about it from a team perspective is because you know I'm, I'm kind of used to like not fully enjoying a Jacob deGrom start because if it's not that he's getting hurt it's that like they're not hitting or the the defense isn't there for him or the bullpen isn't protecting the lead right but um this is a kind of situation I think where the issue is more now that uh the pitching staff is under even more duress than it was already, which was a lot when, when DeGrom got scratched his first time out. Like you really are, I think, pushing it in terms of 
how much work you give everyone behind him, how much work you give the depth behind him. Even if those guys are good, there's, there's always the risk that they won't be so good the next time out if you're working them as hard as the Mets are going to have to work them in Jake's absence. Yeah, things are a little tenuous right now with the pitching staff. As good as they've been, you just kind of worry about workloads because, I, I mean, with this, with the, the the starting staff the way it is, without these, uh, without Carlos Carrasco and Noah Syndergaard, at least for another month, probably in both cases. I mean, we'll talk about the Carrasco news too, but uh, and Syndergaard starting a rehab assignment, but a rehab assignment coming back from Tommy John surgery is not just one or two starts; it's it's a month down there. So, uh, here the deal is with the pitching staff is. It relies on DeGrom to be the workhorse. You kind of have come to rely on Jake to give you at least six every single time out, if not more. And it's been more usually this year when he's been on. He's, you know, seven innings through the complete game against the Nationals. So you kind of hope to get seven from DeGrom at minimum if you can. And because of that, uh, you, you want that so that you can kind of use your bullpen on other days. You kind of use DeGrom days as kind of a DeGrom, Bridget to May and Diaz and go home. Whereas, you know, even though Marcus Stroman and Taiwan Walker have been great, you don't necessarily rely on them for the same type of length. Um, Stroman is a little more of a workhorse than Walker is able to kind of finagle his way through a lineup a third time around more than Walker. But uh, David Peterson hasn't looked all that good. And we really still don't have a clear fifth starter on this rotation yet. Uh, and they can, they can get creative with openers all they want, but on that fifth day, it's, it's tough to, it's tough on the bullpen. If you're, you're having even Joey LaCasey going three innings is, is still tough on a bullpen with an opener because then you got to piece together five more innings. If you have an opener and then LaCasey and that's if LaCasey is good, which he right. hasn't been great. He was good this weekend against the diamondbacks, but, I mean, he was fine. It's yeah. just he was watchable. He was, yeah. It, you just, and that's not even talking about the, the facial hair, but uh, right. it's you. You come to rely on Degrom to give you length and to give the bullpen a rest, almost, so that you don't. You have that one day a week where you can kind of rely on not having to use Familia and Gazelman and Barnes. Whereas today we saw Jacob Barnes who's been fine his last handful of outings. He didn't look as good today because he kind of, he got a little overworked today and we saw it, you know, last night familiar through 37 pitches on Saturday and inning in two thirds, which is not something we see out of Jerry's all that much. So the non leverage guys, the non Diaz and even Diaz had to throw, you know, had to get five outs today. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, you're starting to see Luis Rojas kind of stretching his guys a little bit more than you'd like, because especially this week, I know they won five straight and the bullpen has been great. It's getting a little tough with the, uh, with, with the uh, workloads. I mean, the other thing too, we didn't even mention Miguel Castro, what he did today, which was extremely impressive. Definitely not something I would have pegged him to ever do last season, which was come into a game on practically no warmup because Jacob deGrom got taken out. There were 28 pitches in an inning and get out of like a bases loaded, no out jam. Um, he did a fantastic job. And he also started a game earlier this week too. He was like the opening guy I, that just gets lost on me. The Cardinals series feels like a year ago for a whole lot of reasons, but that's something that has re really impressed me. But at the same, you know, in the same breath, it's like, how much more can you get 
by running this back day after day. I mean, it's, and it's, you know, you mentioned Joey Lucchese, but I'd, you know, I'd sort of argue even with pitchers who have given us nothing but good so far, like Sean Reed Foley um, or, you know, Robert Gesellman, you still just don't know how long that's going to last. And I credit the front office for the guys that they've picked out this time around. Um, it's not like we're watching, you know, Drew Gagno anymore. It's not like we're watching Ariel Hurado. Admittedly, that was only once, but once was more than enough. Like these are, these are guys that legitimately look like they could be on another team's big league roster. Uh, it's now a, like a question of management. I think it's a matter of what Luis Rojas intends to do with these pitchers. And I don't know, man. I mean, he knows them better than I do, obviously, but I just like Jerry's familiar through 37 pitches on Saturday. He hasn't done that in maybe four years, maybe even f like not since Terry Collins was a manager, which is, uh, really concerning because when you have a roster that's organized like this you it hinges on how precisely you're moving your pieces around to get the best results like these are you know pitchers are delicate especially with Matt bullpens because Matt bullpens are never good you can't afford to take one that's good and crush it under a workload yeah I mean it feels like a ticking time bomb in a sense because we've been so used to bad bullpens especially last few years, we've been used to a very bad Jerry's Familia and Familia has an ERA under one right now. Aaron Loop finally just gave up his first earned run of the season. He's pitching to a 1.04. Trevor May is, you know, Trevor's been fantastic, but 13 straight scoreless innings after giving up runs on opening day and an ERA in the mid ones. Like you're starting, Miguel Castro is really, really solid and he's starting to kind of show some cracks. Like you kind of just worry that as good as it's been, maybe it's not as sustainable as it looks because relievers are fickle. They have hot and cold stretches and everyone had came out of the gate this year pitching really, really well with the exception of like Steven Tarpley, who was terrible in his one appearance. And by the way, gave up seven runs in Syracuse the other night. Uh, but you just kind of wonder when things are going to start to you know even out for this team because the pitching has been the strength they're 16 and 13 this year because of the pitching because we have talked about the offense to death and you know there's a whole new you know hitting staff in the dugout now as a result of the struggles that the offense has had this year they're three games over 500 because of the pitching staff and as good as it is is it a true talent you know best bullpen in the national league no i don't think so you know i hope that this lasts for the entire season i hope this bullpen is as good as it's been because they kind of need it to be because if you know until the, the hitting really turns around and we haven't seen this team score a lot of runs yet and you know we're as, as we get further and further and further into the season i'm just you know maybe this is the team maybe this is a team that we thought was going to score a bunch of runs and they just don't maybe this is a team that is reliant on pitching and First of all, I got to give props to Jeremy Hefner because this man is magic. I am, I am convinced this man is magic because even when pitchers are struggling and we saw it with the Grom a little bit in the fifth inning today, and we saw it with Miguel Castro in the sixth inning, it seems like as soon as Hefner goes out to the mound and, and talks to them, he's always on top of whatever tweak that needs to be made. 
it seems like the pitchers, if they're struggling, as soon as they talk to Hefner, completely turn the corner in that inning, like completely make the, the correct adjustment and, and, you know, fix whatever release point issues or whatever. Like Castro came out, hit his first batter and walked a guy, I think, and yeah. came out with, you know, didn't give up a run that inning. So I, I think Jeremy Hefner is, we kind of didn't really see, we weren't like, eh, whatever's going on, you know, last year with the shortened season, but this year I think it's been night and day with this pitching staff. And I really think that we, we talked about Jeremy Hefner as a, as an answer and as a pitching coach, I think we're really starting to see it come to fruition. I think that he is a very, very smart guy to have in that dugout. And he's, he has been a difference maker for this, this bullpen, especially. Yeah, yeah definitely. He's, he's, I think the thing with him is he just knows how to talk to pitchers and it makes sense, right? Cause he was a pitcher for a long time, but um, he knows not only what to say, but he knows like when to say it, he knows exactly when to come out and talk to somebody uh, when they're having trouble. And at that point, he knows what to tell them to help them get out of it. It's been, it's one of the few, I think pre new regime hires that, has really, really like stood its, it stood the test of time. It's, it's, it's worked out pretty well. And it, to your point about 2020, like it's very hard to gauge like how much a pitching coach is helping when the roster was assembled, the pitching staff was assembled the way that it was last year, because that was, that group really didn't stand a chance. And we all, I think like, you know, we didn't really, see it going down any differently than than how it did it wasn't a surprise that like rick porcello and michael waka weren't getting the job done um but you know the 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 other point that you made about hitting i think is also kind of important like this is a this would be a really opportune time for the offense to come out and just start kicking people in the teeth because the rest of this division has been atrocious in terms of holding leads, in terms of fundamentals. I mean, I don't know if you saw the Braves-Phillies game on Saturday, and obviously it's only one game. Um, neither of those teams looks at all like they want any part of playing a good baseball team. This is a perfect chance if you're the Mets and you're three games over 500 to continue this kind of winning streak. I mean, it sucks that they're not going to play tomorrow, but or I guess Monday, if you're listening, that would be today. But um, you know, if you continue this streak, you put yourself in a situation, I think, very similar to where they were in 2015, which is no matter how badly you perform for another two weeks or so, you have that that wiggle room because you took advantage when other teams were playing badly. I think right now, um, the priority above all else should be scoring more runs so that you can keep your starters out longer and rely less on your bullpen to sustain what they're doing well. And I think we've seen like some turnaround with the offense. I mean, the obvious storyline there has been what Francisco Lindor and Jeff McNeil have both done this weekend. Um, But we've also seen, I think, we've seen some better swings from James McCann. We've seen some better swings from Dom Smith. Um, it's also tough to gauge the offense when Brandon Nimmo and JD Davis just aren't there and really have never been there since they first had injuries that they were dealing with. Like they should have IL both of them and kept them there for longer. Like it, you know, that that's just costing them more time. But uh, Alonzo has kind of very quietly and Conforto 
for that matter. They've both turned into like the most consistent hitters in this lineup, or at least like the hardest to pitch to in this lineup. And that has helped them a great deal in the past five days with all those, you know, with the wins that they've racked up. Um, Yeah. This offense is like you said, this is a really great time for them to turn it on because first of all, you're not facing a particularly good pitching staff against the Orioles coming up on Tuesday and Wednesday. And I, you know, I know we're facing John means on Tuesday and John means just happened to throw a no hitter in Seattle last week. So, or this week. So, you know, we're facing John means who's actually good. Uh, and he's on my fantasy team. So I wish him the best of luck. I hope he loses a one, nothing or gets a no decision or whatever. Uh, and I, you know, Matt Harvey on, on Wednesday, which is just very excited to see Matt pitch at city field again, but you got to take care of business. And I really hope that these games against the Orioles are, games in which the offense can take the pressure off the pitching staff, because then you get four in Tampa Bay. And that is something that makes me a little nervous because the Rays are a pretty good baseball team and you get four games in a row against a good baseball team, especially with David Peterson starting that series on Thursday. You don't really know who's pitching Friday. That's the, that's the fifth spot, the Lucchese possible opener spot, Yamamoto, maybe Uh, you don't know what you're getting there. So you kind of are anticipating having to use that bullpen, a lot in Tampa Bay, especially those first two games and maybe even the first three games. Cause you don't know if DeGrom is good to go for that next spot. Uh, so who, who knows, but I'm really hoping they take care of business against the Orioles this week, the off day on Monday today uh, for you, all you guys at home, that is helpful in terms of taking the pressure off the bullpen so they can all, everyone can rest and, and, and reset. Uh, but Tuesday and Wednesday, would be really, really, really helpful if if we can kind of just maybe just use uh, the the back end leverage guys if we need to, so that everyone can kind of go into that that weekend series in Tampa Bay rested. Uh, we don't know what the bullpen's going to look like by then because there's a lot of roster moves being made every day. Sean Reed Foley, uh, Sean Reed Foley could be back. Tommy Hunter could be gone by then. Uh, Trevor Hildenberger could be back. Sorry to Trevor who got kind of hit around today in Syracuse after getting optioned. Drew Smith is here, so we'll see him in a game at some point. You'd have to imagine Jordan Yamamoto. Like, I, I like Yamamoto. I like the idea. I don't know about you, Jack, but I kind of like the idea of Yamamoto piggybacking with Lucchese in some, some order, trying to go, you know, once or twice through the order with one of them and then jumping into the other one as a, as a kind of bulk reliever. So three, four innings out of each of them if you can. So um, I don't know how you feel about that, but I yeah. think that's something that they should explore. Using they both of them in tandem. Should. They absolutely should. And I think that with the way that Lucchese performed on Saturday, especially like pitching after somebody else, he looked a lot better. He at least looked a little bit more comfortable. Uh, and considering he is really like a two-pitch pitcher, uh, that's probably a better option to be putting out there later in innings anyway because you have a little bit more leverage to like play around with hitters. Whereas as a starter, you kind of – um, want to lay more out. I think Yamamoto starting and then Lucchese relieving is probably the your best chance out of getting seven innings from that that fifth spot in the rotation. Um, seven might be a stretch. I mean, the thing about it too is, you know, if you really are insistent on like giving Tommy Hunter innings and giving Jacob Barnes innings, then maybe you could go like two, three, and then two. And then, uh, you know, those last two innings become like your high leverage pawns. But I think that's, I think that's a pretty sound idea. Um, 
I don't see why it wouldn't work. I also don't think that like if we're doing this in September, it's going to be a great look, but it, it ultimately like it's your best way of patching things up now when you're still waiting on Carlos Carrasco and you're still waiting on Noah Syndergaard. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally behind it. Yeah. I think the, the Saturday game, I hope it's just an eye-opening experience for this, uh, this coaching staff and for the organization as a whole and seeing how exactly to utilize Joey LaCasey because using him as just a straight starter isn't going to work. He's a two pitch guy. He's not overpowering even the, the churve. Like it's, it's an interesting pitch, but it's not really much of an out pitch. Like he's not a high strikeout guy and like right-handed hitters seem to see him pretty well. So he's, he's not a guy that you want facing a lineup, especially a right-handed lineup. I don't, I don't understand the, the thought process into letting him start like start against the Cardinals who are a very right-handed and potent right-handed lineup. Whereas you had Yamamoto coming up. So, uh, I think that they should have had the reverse of that. I think Yamamoto should have started that game on Tuesday instead of uh, Lucchese when DeGrom couldn't go. Um, but, you know, Lucchese pitched Saturday and he he got once, twice through the order pretty much unscathed. So you don't want him to face the middle of a lineup more than once, really, or even twice if you get lucky, if it's a left-handed, you know, a left-handed lineup or whatever. So uh, we'll see how it goes in Tampa Bay. But I think the experience Saturday is indicative of a guy who uh, really should not be facing the big hitters in a lineup more than once uh, and definitely not more than twice. And I hope that the fact that he only got those, those three innings against the diamondbacks um, speaks to the Mets realizing that and not using him as a straight starter. Cause he's not going to be a straight starter. He doesn't have a third pitch that he can use. He doesn't really have an out pitch against right-handed hitters. So We'll see how it goes, but for now, I think the the way they use him against the Diamondbacks is a good sign for utilization going forward. Uh, the pitching staff right now is a very kind of raised pitching staff, I think, and you kind of have to get creative sometimes because especially if you're using an opener once a week now with uh, the injuries in the, in the pitching staff until Carrasco or Syndergaard gets back, or really even until uh, you have some clarity on, on you know, this Degrom uh, timeline with his lat, um, it's it's you got to get creative and you gotta you gotta kind of lean into the analytics on the pitching side and and figure out what arms you can use against which hitters and really lean into that. And I you know you don't want Joey Lacasey facing you know Willie Adamas or uh, uh, the the best hitters on this Rays team any more than he has to. Um, you got to get creative. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, so that's. That's probably everything with the with the pitchers. I mean, I, I am very scared about the Rays, uh, and you hope that they, you hope that they turn it around offensively in time for that. Especially given like how those hitters can punish you. I mean, not so much Adamus because he hasn't really like he hasn't actually had that good a season like statistically. But like Randy Orozarena is yeah ridiculous. Willie um, was just the first hitter, the first right-handed hitter off the top of my head. Yeah, Rosarena has been great. I mean, Manuel Margot is somebody who's like always kicked the Mets' ass, even if his numbers haven't always been great. Like, you have to anticipate that kind of thing happening. Um, it's interesting, though, to think that like they managed to split that series with the Cardinals because they've been like, they've very quietly like supplanted the Dodgers in terms of like who's the hottest team in baseball right now. Like, the Dodgers have looked pretty bad. 
I still think the Dodgers are a better team than the Cardinals, but they're going in very different directions the last like three weeks or so. The fact that the Mets managed, especially after losing the first two games to split with St. Louis on their way back home was pretty impressive. And I think it kind of speaks to like something bigger about like this team's ability to bounce back from things. Because if, if, if my memory serves me correctly, because again, like this week has just been really long baseball wise. It seems like there's been a new story every day, but that series started with them firing Chili Davis after the first game. They fired Chili Davis and Tom Slater, which I only remembered like late last night, you know, with all the, I guess, the commotion from Friday, which we will also talk about plenty because I know, Sam, you definitely have some opinions on that. But they they turned it around. You wouldn't think from Pete's reaction, like the day after they let Chili go, that this team was going to – start a winning streak and yet they have and they've they've kept it going and it's been really I think it's been really like encouraging because usually these kinds of narratives sort of kickstart or, or lay the foundation for like just a, a meltdown month um meltdown may right but like this is this has actually been pretty pretty good for the most part I, I can't really say if firing Chili Davis is the reason that that that's happened because statistically I went through some of like the stack cast things the past week has been like it hasn't been that different from what they've been doing with Chili Davis to this point in terms of like launch angle and and expected statistics but uh I mean they're winning they're they're getting the hits when they matter and that's something that in the wake of that decision especially the way it was carried out because that's something I don't think we talked enough about like they they did a bad job firing this guy even if he deserved to lose his lose his job yeah i i think that when you make a move like this in firing the hitting coach first of all it was rather unceremonious and they probably should not have done it 20 some odd games into the season if they were going to do it they probably should have done it in the off season uh because like, you know, a month could just be a bad month. You don't know. And I'm like the biggest anti-Chili Davis guy on the planet. This dude has has tanked offenses pretty much everywhere he's gone in his coaching career in terms of, you know, those teams, they hit more ground balls and they hit less homers. And if you know me, you know that I am, you know, I'm I'm part of this, this generation of baseball fans who is like in favor of hitting home runs. And the Mets don't do that. Uh, so or didn't do it under Chile. They've, they've started to pick it up a little bit this week uh, in terms of, I mean, we're still kind of not seeing the the changeover in philosophy. We're starting to, the team has hit better this week, but again, it's only been six games since, since QQ took over. Uh, so it, it, it feel bad for Chile. I do feel bad for Chile because you know, he didn't get to be around the team last year because he of COVID, he didn't want to travel with the team. He got vaccinated and he was able to be with the team this year. And the team seemed to really relish being around him again because he wasn't, he was a, you know, they loved him in the clubhouse. They did. Pete seemed to be pretty close with him, even if their hitting philosophies did not seem to match up whatsoever. Uh, but yeah, it, it's like, I feel bad for the guy because he finally gets back with the team. And it just seems like his influence on the offense is a complete net negative. And he's gone. He's fired rather unceremoniously, as is Tom Slater, who's been with the team even longer. And it, you just you feel for the guy. However, you, you hope that it lights a fire under the team. 
and and says, you know, hey, there's consequences if we don't do our jobs here as as hitters. And while they haven't, you know, turned around and been complete, uh, you know, world beaters offensively over the last week, I mean, 17 runners on base in a game on Thursday that they wound up winning um, just because of the fact that the Cardinals couldn't throw strikes. Uh, they're not they're not hitting the tar out of the baseball yet, and maybe they'll get there soon. Um, but they've been slightly better, especially Lindor has been way better this week. And, and you're really hoping that that in, in and of itself makes the firing worth it. If this is the reason why Lindor has gone back to uh, a little bit more of a productive hitter, you get the home run on, uh, on Friday night and uh, he had a double on Saturday night and he's just looked generally better. He's taking better swings and uh, who knows if, if a little fight in the clubhouse might've stirred something up for him, but the last four games he's taken better swings and whether that's the influence of the new hitting staff or not, um, maybe it's just coincidence that, you know, when the, the new hitting, the hitting coach came in, when Quattlebaum came in that he kind of turned things a little bit around, maybe it's just coincidence, but you kind of just, you, you hope this is the start of something for this team. Yeah. I think it's about like, I mean, this is a, this is kind of like a bad way to think about it and probably a reason why, like I'm not, not going to be in a front office, but part of it, I think, is about like sending a message to the players, like you said. Uh, and I feel bad for the players because they were close to Chile, um, and they felt like they also the the fact that they like found out over Twitter and information as to the you know as to how this was going to happen, when it was going to happen, um, whether they'd get a chance to say goodbye to him. Like I don't think Pete even got that opportunity. Uh, that's frustrating, but they've turned it around. I think the thing I forget a lot about Friday is that like, that was just a really fun win. They were down four to nothing. I mean, David Peterson got the crap kicked out of him, basically lost his start in the middle of the second inning for whatever reason, stopped throwing strikes. And it looked, it looked pretty grim. And then they slowly started to, to put things back together. Um, you know, the runs kind of made their way in. I think VR had a, had a clutch to at RBI at one point that, you know, good for him. Honestly, he's been getting hits when they matter, uh, which is what you, you want out of your bench guys. Um, the Lindor Homer was, was just like the icing on the cake though. And for me, that was the point where I think I realized like, all right, they're, they're going to be fine. Like the hitters are going to be fine. Lindor is going to figure it out. Um, at that point, you were just hoping that the bullpen would, keep a lock on it and they they pretty much did like Aaron Loop looked great in the 10th inning Edwin Diaz looked great in the ninth um and they didn't let like whatever happened in the tunnel stop them from like a, accomplishing that goal I'm pretty sure they were losing while that was happening and then 10 minutes later Lindor came up and hit the homer and um you know you kind of forget at least in that moment i kind of forgot like what it was about and i definitely at the time did not assume it was a fight either i figured like somebody had had passed out or something because it wasn't you had no look into what was actually happening in the tunnel you just saw a bunch of dudes like signaling for someone at the end of the dugout and then a bunch of guys running into the dugout and then a bunch of people standing around that part of the tunnel the rest of the inning just looking like very grimly concerned. And uh, I was actually kind of surprised to 
find out more or less that there had been a disagreement between Lindor and McNeil. I never thought that that was what it was. And personally, I didn't, I didn't really care anyway, because they came back to win that game. Like I would have cared more if it had been like what happened with Jason Vargas, where like they had this meltdown of a series where they made bad decisions and played bad baseball and lost a game that they should have won and then continued to play badly. And this fight was just like, like a, a, a symptom of that, but this was not really a symptom of anything as much as it was like a catalyst, which was kind of nice. And I don't know, maybe that's part of why I wasn't like super thrilled about everyone wanting to know what the fight was about or what it was. Cause as, as soon as I realized that like everyone was safe and everyone was fine, like they won the game, they won a game that they probably should have lost. Um, they, they would, they refused to lose though. And I, I appreciated that a lot. It definitely turned my spirit around on on the general course of the season. Yeah, I, I have a different like read on things just because of my uh, the way I experienced it all. Because I I wasn't watching when it was happening. I couldn't watch. Honestly, I'll be honest with you guys. I I had uh, I had plans both Friday night and today on Sunday, so I, I didn't get to watch most of those games and. We were celebrating my roommate's 21st on Friday, so I was around some people, and, and I wasn't really – I was keeping my eyes on my phone and, and trying to figure out what was going on, and I get the notification that Lindor hit a home run, and I'm very excited there at this this gathering, and I'm trying to, you know, uh, search for the highlight, and I'm you know, scrolling on the Twitter timeline, and I'm seeing screenshots of, uh, of, uh, of both McNeil and Lindor look absolutely terrified or, or like – they look like something spooked them, and – I see the, uh, the little clip of, of Conforto and Dom Smith running down the dugout steps because they see something in the tunnel. Uh, and I'm like, everyone is freaking out on the timeline. And I'm like, what is going on? And obviously now I'm up to date on things. And, um, you know, my first thought wasn't fight. My first thought again was, oh God, some, someone, you know, is hurt in the, in the tunnel or a coach passed out or, or someone, you know, there's something's wrong in the tunnel or, Whatever. And the story they gave us made sense. You know, it would make sense if, you know, if, if, if Michael Conforto peered into the tunnel as he was coming in from the, the field and saw a giant rodent in the, uh, in the tunnel, he'd probably get a little spooked, but he, he kind of ran, ran into the tunnel. So I, I don't know, you know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless he is a really big fan of rodents. Uh, but he Ratatouille, dude, he had to get a, he had to, he had to learn how to, no, wait, no, that's Nemo who needs to learn how to cook. Nemo was the one who like ate raw chicken a few years ago, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, never mind. I mean, the, here's here's the facts of the you know they're they're grown men. They were both struggling at the plate. They've both been struggling at the plate pretty much all season. McNeil not to the level of Lindor, especially not with the pressure Lindor was under. But Jeff is a guy who's used to hitting three twenty, uh, and he and he base hits have been hard to find for Jeff this year. Besides the four hit game he had, you know, against the uh, the Phillies when Jeff gets a base hit, seems like he's going one for four. So things have been a little harder to find for Jeff. Uh, and he is a naturally fiery individual with a temper, as we know by the expletives he yells anytime he lines out or grounds out right to someone or gets under a fly ball. Uh, so things were mounting for Jeff. And we have to assume things were mounting for Lindor too, because the man is under an inscrutable amount of pressure. Like I can't even imagine. He he says he doesn't he doesn't feel any more pressure than he felt when he was slumping in Cleveland. I cannot imagine that's true. You are making a ton of money. The fan base is completely tonally different now. You're in New York. You're not in Cleveland, Ohio anymore. So, 
you know, he might express to the media that there's not any more pressure, but my, my man, there is so much more pressure. There's no Howie and Alyssa Rose in Cleveland. Yeah, there are, you're not dealing with uh, Mike from Massapequa screaming at you down the first baseline every time you walk back to the dugout after ground out. Like, you're not getting booed in Cleveland. You're getting booed here, man. And, and that mounts the pressure. And so I understand that if someone says something to you in the tunnel, maybe a teammate who is also equally frustrated and is letting the temper get the better of him, that you might not react so positively, especially if that teammate may have said something personal. We don't know what Jeff said to him, but we know that words were exchanged and we, we kind of know that Jeff was the instigator here, I think. Yeah, usually. Team, I mean, teammates yeah. stepped in before punches were thrown, but there was a, there was a, there was a, a verbal confrontation here. Yeah. And I think they both realized, especially after Lindor hit the home run, all right, this is going to be a question post post game. We got to figure out our alibi. We got to figure out, cause we don't want them to know there's infighting here. Oh, we saw a rat or maybe it was, you know, I thought it was a rat. Jeff thought it was a raccoon, whatever. We tell the rest of the team, everyone's on board with the story. That's what we tell the media. And you know what, for, for, you know, to their part, the story made enough sense so that people were running with it. And I think everyone was more or less running with it and in the media included, wasn't really, digging too deeply until the Zach Scott press conference came around. And with the Zach Scott press conference, there were questions about it. And Scott didn't run with the story. Scott was like, I'm, I'm not a fan of how they handled a confrontation between them more or less confirmed. Something did happen. I'm not, he said, I'm not a fan of how they did it. I would have handled it differently. Um, whatever. So he, Zach Scott more or less confirmed that there was a confrontation between McNeil and Lindor and because of that, we're talking about it more. Uh, like, I agree with you, Jack, that it would not have been quite the story, or it would have been more of a story. It would have been a worse story if they had lost the game. Because then you're like, oh, my God, there's infighting in the clubhouse and the team is playing poorly. But they won the game, and it was one of the best wins of the year. So it seems less serious. You can walk into a post-game presser and let Lindor smile and laugh and joke about, oh, it was a rat or a raccoon. We didn't know, and that's what we were talking about. But – you know, the day after the media starts digging and now there's this whole conversation of were the media lied to intentionally or, you know, what is going on? And it's just like, it's, it's messy, man. I think for me, at least in the moment, seeing the fight as it happened, not, well, not seeing the fight, right. Cause no one saw the fight, but seeing what happened in the dugout, seeing the, this is, I think where like, and this isn't my way of saying like, well, you wouldn't know cause you wouldn't watch the game. But there were SNY had these little shots in between innings after that happened where you could see like Pete Alonzo, like giving like Jeff McNeil, like a little fist bump or giving him a hug or like Dom and Conforto giving Lindor a hug. Like you could kind of gather from those little shots right off the bat that there had been a disagreement of some kind between those two players. And people were piecing that together as it was happening, my honest take on the statement after the game, the, the rat rodent thing was, and I'm not in the clubhouse. I don't know them. I don't know what their alibi or their, their motive is. Right. But like, and it's so silly to even like be digging into it this way. Cause like they won the game and they've moved on and they're on. Everyone knows that we had a disagreement. 
they saw something in the tunnel. We know we were fighting in the tunnel. We should diffuse the situation immediately um, and just make a joke. I honestly don't understand how people's interpretation of the rat rodent thing was anything more serious than like, oh, they're just not gonna tell us what they were actually fighting about. Like, of course they weren't, of course they weren't actually arguing about whether there was a rat or a raccoon. And I don't think they, I don't really think that Francisco Lindor expected people or was hoping that people would buy that story. I honestly thought, and again, maybe this is me as a fan and as somebody who loves both of these players reading way too far into it and pathologizing, you know, what they were trying to do or who they are. But like, I honestly thought that like, this was just a very tongue in cheek way of saying like, yeah, we had a fight, but like it's over and I'm joking about it with you now. And then Jeff came out and Jeff joked about it. I, so I don't, I don't really know why after the game people were even like pressed about the truth of that. Like, of course it's not true. Of course, because they made a, a story that ridiculous, they're not gonna tell you what actually happened. And I think this is where like things got a little bit more tense on the timeline because it was like people, there was a question of wanting to know more because you wanted to know what actually happened between the two and like wanting to know more because you were upset that like Lindor made a joke about it. Like I think some people, like John Harper and Todd Zeal were being total losers the entire night after that. And they continued to embarrass themselves the day after talking about how like, don't insult our intelligence. Like, don't lie to us. Like, don't manipulate us. Don't mislead us. Like people were saying they were gaslit. Like, no, you were, you were told a joke. You were politely comically told like, yeah, there was, there was a disagreement, but we're not really going to get into it. But here's this funny story. And I know that like, I think part of it's because, and I realize I've been talking for a long time, but I think that part of it is like, we're so used to the Mets stories, like getting completely blown up in our face and us thinking like everybody's fighting, everything's terrible, uh, everything sucks. But like, this is just kind of, I think like a different way that this team wants to approach and handle like the fact that there was a confrontation. Like you're not gonna get Jason Vargas standing in front of a camera saying like, yeah, everyone's lying about me. That's not what happened. Everyone's lying. There's more to the story. Like you're not going to get that kind of like lead uh, from either of them. And I think that like in the case of like some people feeling like lied to, I think that was more just like people wanting more information than like they were entitled to. And I think again, like it's fine to ask Zach Scott, like, Hey, you know, what was your take on it? But I think that asking Zach Scott so that you could get an answer from him that was like, yeah, I don't agree with the way that Lindor and McNeil answered the, the question. Like, that's just kind of petty to me. And it seems like a, a I'm, it's not a way of like the media trying to pick a fight with either player because they're, you know, there's investigating going on, right? But there's a difference between like asking to get info um, and asking to like get retribution or get like some sort of disciplinary you know, statement from, you know, the, their bosses that like, you shouldn't joke about this kind of thing. Like, why can't they joke about this? That's, that's, that's how I feel. So there's like, for, for me, there's, there's two perspectives here. There's the 
player, the clubhouse perspective, and there's the reporter media journalist perspective. And I think you got to kind of understand both sides, at least a little bit from the, the clubhouse perspective, baseball players, especially, you know, in this higher league, you know, the more competitive you get, the kind of the more it's, it's heightened baseball players very much view the team as a family. They view this, they view the clubhouse as this closed entity where things get said and things get dealt with and it's personal and it's private. And it is up to the players to disclose what they want to disclose to the media. When there are fights within a family, you deal with those fights privately, you figure them out, and it's not really anyone's business unless you want to make it someone else's business. And that's totally understandable. I mean, you have fights with your brothers all the time in a family, and whether that gets physical, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But you're going to bicker and you're going to argue with people that you see constantly because it's hard to be around people every day, especially when tempers are up in general, when these two players who are used to success are not hitting, they're not doing their jobs. So that's one perspective. That's the, that's the player perspective. That's the, we had this argument, we're dealing with it, we're keeping it in-house. Mm-hmm. And it's up to us if we want to disclose any, any further information to the media. Then there's the reporter uh, mentality the reporter perspective, which is one that I understand because I'm, I'm in journalism school right now. And I was talking about this on the, on the Twitter timeline on Saturday and trying to, you know, at risk of sounding like I'm holding water for reporters and for the media industry in general, I was trying to explain that perspective because a lot of people don't understand that the media are not trying to antagonize players. They're trying to do their jobs. They're trying to figure out what's a story and what's not. And the only way to do that is, asking questions when you are granted access. And right now, especially in the age of COVID, there is less access to the clubhouse than there's ever been. So reporters cannot go up to players directly and ask them, you know, before games, when the cameras are off, hey, would you be willing to talk about what happened? So when there's a press availability for the general manager the next day, of course, they're going to ask about DeGrom's lat, but that is, we kind of have an idea of how that's going. We kind of had a, an idea that he was probably going to start this weekend. We're getting updates from Rojas every day on DeGrom. So you'll have to, you know, fault them, whatever, if, if DeGrom is not the first question when your $341 million man fought another t- teammate the previous night, or perhaps fought another teammate. We didn't know at that point. And then came up with a story that was so clearly false. Yeah. Like, it's not, they're not antagonizing Zach Scott by trying to find more information. They're not whining. Some of the, like you said, Harper and Todd Zeal were whining a little bit about it, but none of the actual reporters on the beat, as far as I saw, were complaining about the story, about the rat raccoon story. They were doing their due diligence. If you as a reporter think that you are getting bad information or you're not getting the whole story, it's on you as a reporter to search for more truth. And the Mm -hmm. only way to do that now with the access that they have in COVID is to ask questions when they are granted the ability to ask questions. So they're not, they're, they're digging for a story when they think there's a story. And of course it's a story. Even if Lindor and McNeil think it's not a story, it's absolutely a story because Francisco Lindor is Francisco Lindor. He is a $341 million man. He is struggling in his first month in orange and blue Everything he does is under the microscope right now. And if he fights a teammate, that's a story. That's a big story. No matter how Francisco and, and Jeff deal with it. It's a huge story. 
it's can you imagine if Aaron Judge fought some dude in in his clubhouse, even if it was like Luis Sessa? That's a story because it's yeah. Aaron Judge because it's New York and the stars in New York are constantly under a microscope. So on the one perspective, on the player perspective, I don't care if they don't think it's a story. They can say whatever they want to the media who are going to do their jobs and dig a little bit more. It's so blatantly obvious it's a story, even if it's not to the fans of the players, and that there is something beneath the surface here. And whether all it is is, hey, there was a disagreement. We're dealing with it now. We're best friends again. That's still a story just because yeah. who is involved. Yeah. So they're going to run with this. Of course they're going to run with this. And it's not media being the enemy. It's not media being the antagonists again and again and again, which is something people love to say. It is reporters doing their due diligence, trying to find a story. And the good ones, if they think they're being lied to, they will dig even deeper. And that's, I think, what was happening here. Yeah. Well, I don't think, I mean, I guess my thing is like, I think that like Tim Healy who was, I think, especially like outspoken about it. And I love Tim Healy's work. I don't think he thought like he was being lied to as much as he thought like, all right, well, they're not going to tell me, but this is important and I want people to know it's important. So I'm going to ask Zach, Zach Scott. And like, that's that's fine. Like, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like you said, that's them doing their job and that's appropriate because it's, it's you know, it's a big story. Uh, and I also give credit to like, I think the players in that situation for understanding that aspect of it. Like nobody was confrontational after the fact toward people who asked Zach Scott for clarification. I think that there's definitely like a line. And I think most of the people on the Mets beat, like most people in those like Zoom rooms do a really good job of like, you know, understanding it uh, where You want to have relationships with these players. Uh, you want to get info from them. And I think that Tim Healy, for example, handled it well by making sure to effectively like ask, like, you know, is that is, you know, is this the story that actually happened or is there more to it? And I get that. Like you want to get info and you want your story to 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 make more sense. Um, I guess, yeah, for me, the people I took the most exception to, and it wasn't only like some of whom were like credentialed beat writers again like John Harper like I don't know what his deal is Matt E. Hall isn't on the Mets beat anymore but he was like very insistent that like Lindor lied and knew he was lying it was like no he like people tell jokes all the time and those are lies but you also know that they're jokes they're not malicious and they're not misleading or deceptive it's it's there's a coded message there um and I think that like people did a good job inquiring versus like antagonizing. But I also think that like some people were very like almost, it was almost like some people I think wanted confirmation that like the team is in shambles or that like the team is falling apart, that like it's, it's not great in Mets land. Like your $340 million hero is fighting the homegrown players. Like I think people are so just conditioned to everything about being a Met fan turning to shit that like they were very insistent on hearing from Zach Scott that like, yeah, these guys are lying and uh, that's not okay. And it's bad and we stand against it or whatever. But like, I don't think that's necessarily what matters as much as the fact that like, like you said, the players were fighting. Um, so yeah, that's, I don't know if anything I said was like new or just echoing where you were on it, but that's, 
Yeah. I don't know. It's just, there are, there are certain things that kind of get said during one of these like instances where people think that the media is trying to run with a non-story or, or, or something. It's just like, I don't know. I feel like there's this disconnect between people who, who kind of get how it works in the industry and people who are completely disconnected from it. Like Marcus Stroman on Saturday morning, put something on an Instagram story or something that like the media are always trying to create, you know, trying to drive wedges between people and create stories where there aren't any. I'm like, Marcus, it's just like, it's just not true, man. Like there is, first of all, this idea, this allow me to, you know, get on my little, you know, like this idea of the big, bad, the media, like I hate the phrase, the media, because there's no such thing as the media. You right now listening to this podcast are using the media, the media, 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 is medium is the singular form of media a me- spotify is a medium for you to listen to a podcast as uh, your television screen that is a medium for you to view media yeah like, it's like people complaining about analytics like it's just numbers yeah you know? you're putting you're collectivizing this idea because you don't understand the idea yeah there are bad journalists out there there are reporters who will try to run with non-stories just to create something controversial but actual reporters, 90% of the people covering Mets games for a living, they're not actually trying to create strife in the clubhouse. They're not trying to create stories where there aren't any. They're taking the facts that are presented to them, and they're creating content. These guys are on quotas. They have to push content out every day. They have to write multiple articles every day. It's, it's a grind. It's a hard job. Mm-hmm. And they are just trying to get information where they're allowed information they're trying to do their jobs and they're trying to push out stories and there's rarely ever anything antagonistic about it they're just doing their jobs man they're just like you and me like these are like marcus as much as you just want no distractions to to get out there and pitch disha thosar and tim Britton just want to ask players questions so they can disappear into the press box for a few hours and pound out 500 words on Patrick Mazika getting his shirt ripped off for an RBI on his, in his, you know, his, his first career walk off RBI. Like they're going to write stories on anything that they could write stories on. Cause they have to pitch multiple stories every day to their editors. Yeah. Like, of course they're going to run with a story about a player getting, you know, in a fight with another player. It just, it yeah. frustrates me that people think that this is a non-story and that reporters are like in the wrong here for trying to make it something that they say it's not, but it is, it is a story because it's Francisco Lindor. I don't understand why people don't think it's a story and it, it frustrates me. And like the media is not out to get you because the media doesn't exist. The media industry, sure it exists, but the media doesn't exist. But- it's not the media's fault. It's the man's fault. That's what I'm getting from this. <laughs> like the media has to write stories for the man. If you're going to blame someone for, for the stories that reporters are writing, don't blame the reporters, blame their editors, blame the the companies they work for. All I'm saying is, you know, if you didn't like certain coverage around certain harassment scandals or whatever, don't blame the reporters. Reporters are on an agenda that someone else sets. All I'm saying. Okay. Stepping off my soapbox. I think we've covered that to death. Should we remember some guys, unless you have something else to say? No, I think, I think you, you said, about everything that like needed to be said. And I just kind of said like what I wanted to say, but we're good. You yeah, want to remember also, your guy first. It's also, it's a little more difficult for me to uh, like 
separate what I've learned in school from what the normal dude knows. Cause I'm like in media classes every semester, fig like learning yeah. this stuff. And I'm in journalism classes, I'm in reporting classes. So I'm like learning about all this stuff. And I got to sometimes center myself and realize that, you know, Mike and Massapeak would, you know, who is an engineer or a plumber, like th- doesn't know any of this stuff. He's just rooting for the Mets. Like yeah. I'm in a different position as, as the type of fan that I am. Versus, you know, the average Mets fan. So uh, I digress. But yes, let's remember some guys. A lot of talk about bullpens this year has me thinking about some of my favorite memorable bullpen arms throughout, uh, you know, my fandom as a Met. And I decided to focus on one who I thought got a unfortunate kind of uh, the, the short end of the stick with the Mets. And that is uh, the old friend, uh, Vic Black. Mm. That's and good. Vic, Vic, uh, you look at his career line, you're like, why did this guy not pitch more? 59 career games is an ERA below three. Uh, for the Mets in uh, 2014, he got into 41 games, 34 and two-thirds innings, and he had a 2.60 ERA. So it's like if 134 ERA plus. So like, so sorry, Vic. You struck out 8.3 guys per nine. He had a big, you know, big fastball, big curveball. Um and he's a, he seemed like a really good dude. He seemed like a really good dude. And I wonder what, what Vic Black was up to. I don't really know. He, I think he got hurt. Yeah, Wally Backman. He like had a bad spring training in 2015 and they had a loaded bullpen in terms of depth and optionable guys. So they figured they'd stash him in Vegas, which was basically like in Star Wars when they drop the woman in the pit with Jabba the Hutt. Like, cause v- Wally Backman just ate Vic Black alive. Like, could not stop using him, made him do like pitch every other game. The dude completely torched his arm. Um, and that's why you never saw Vic Black again. Yeah. Triple A Las Vegas, 2015, uh, 31 games. He had a 7.43 ERA, which is going to be heightened because it's Vegas. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of wear and tear there for Vic. Um, 26 and two thirds innings. So, I mean, he, he had more games than innings pitched. So I don't think they were extending him too much, but it seemed like he was pitching, pitching a lot. Also had 26 walks and 26 and two thirds innings in Vegas. And then. I think short... 31 games was like 31 games through like June or July. And then he got zapped because he was hurt. I think yeah. that's what it was. I don't want to say for sure, but he, it was injuries more than ability that took him away from us. He, uh, he pitched for the, the Jersey Jackals in the uh, Can-American League in 2018 as a 30-year-old and, and didn't pitch well at a, an ERA over four there in uh, 15 games. So started nine games. Wow. Uh, good for Vic. Uh, maybe he's trying to come back as a starter. But he always seemed like a good dude, and I always liked him. And I was like, man, I wish things turned out better for Vic Black, who they got from the Pirates, I believe, in the Marlon Bird trade, right? Yeah, it was him and Dilson. Yeah. Pretty, pretty good deal. Um, my guy... So I was thinking about bullpens and as I was thinking about like SNY melting down in the last few days over the rat rodent raccoon thing, uh, I thought about like guys who used to work for SNY that like didn't piss me off as much as Todd Zeal does. Um, And I thought of Nelson Figueroa who pitched in 2008 and 2009 and he was essentially like that one veteran swing man who came up whenever they needed him from triple a because another guy would get hurt he actually wasn't like 
that bad. 428 ERA in the late 2000s, like the the this was back when like people were still throwing like you know 91, 92 regularly, and like 95 was what 100 is now. Like um, he he held his own. He was like 35 years old, and he ate a lot of innings, threw some strikes. Uh, I think he was like. I think like the 2009 season actually ended with him like pitching a complete game shutout. I don't want to say for sure that that's how the year ended, but he did triple uh, at one point too. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, he, and then uh, the <laughs> one thing I remember about Nelson Figueroa, unfortunately, is his involvement in excising a better player off the roster. Um, when the, he got added to the 40 man, they DFA Darren O'Day for him. Oh no! Wait, was yeah. that how they cut O'Day? Yeah, that's how they cut O'Day. I'm like 90 percent sure there. Uh, and of course, Darren O'Day went went on to have you know an All Star career, you know, in, in uh, Texas and Baltimore and wherever he wound up. He's with the Yankees now, but obviously, it's been a long, long successful career for Darren, who a lot of people forget uh, he was a Met, but he went off to Texas, who claimed him after the Mets DFA'd him, and uh, pretty sure he was DFA'd to make uh, make a roster spot for Nelson Figueroa. I'd like to think that the Jerry Manuel era Mets would have destroyed Darren O'Day anyway, but we can, we can meditate on that. But Nelson Figueroa, dude, he was actually pretty good. Like on SNY. Uh, I don't know when he left. I think it was like after 2018 he left. Um, but yeah, he was a lot better than Todd Zeal. He yelled a lot less, um, like just complained about players a lot less seemed much more at peace with the fact that like he wasn't a player anymore. Um, yeah. I wish they were, I wish they made him more like Nelson is my point. Yeah. I think you, you would do yourself a lot better if you just didn't watch the pre and post game coverage. Like, oh, I don't, I don't, I hear about it and then I get curious and I watch it and then I hate it, which is actually why I opted against uh, watching Elon Musk on SNL because if Todd Zeal on SNY was going to piss me off, I knew that that was going to put me in another dimension. So, yeah. See, I just avoided both. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. All that's, progress. that's all the time we have for this episode of the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. Sure. You know, it, it was an episode. We talked about a lot. We covered a lot of ground. I think we were here for over an hour. So, hope you guys enjoyed. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. So, for Jack Hendon, my name is Sam Lebowitz. And Mets fans, have a pleasant good evening. Thank you.